0: Many believers know the story of Augustine's salvation, his confessions. Just a tremendous, oh, <laughs> before I get it, I forgot. There was one announcement uh, I needed to make. Here I am getting into my notes here. Uh, on the back of the bulletin, it says that Christmas Eve uh, service is Saturday. It's actually Sunday, it's Sunday, so Sunday is Christmas Eve. So anyway, September 24th. Sunday. In case you're confused, you think December 24th is actually Saturday, or that we're actually doing it December 23rd on Saturday. There you go. I cleared that up. All right. Thank you. <laughs> well, getting back to Augustine. So we're, we're familiar with Augustine's salvation and his confessions, and you know you have that book uh, that he wrote. Uh, the Confessions is what it's called. Um, it really, is this testimony, and it's one. Giant prayer, and it's an incredible read. But fewer know the story behind the story. The story of Monica. You see, who's Monica? That was the name of Augustine's mother. His mother, who prayed for him and pled with him and lived out the gospel before his eyes. It would never get to see him live his life for the pleasures of Christ over the pleasures of his own lusts. But make no mistake, God saved Augustine with the testimony of Monica coursing deep. In his veins. In a sense, that is an illustration of exactly what the Lord teaches us through Peter in our study for this morning when we consider the impact, the impact of one so close to another, the impact of the gospel living, being lived out in the life of one connected so close. To another. So, if you would please turn to 1 Peter 3 and let's put verses 1 through 3 before our eyes. Allow me, if you would, to read this section and then give you uh, the explanation of it. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also... Who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Now the title for our study this morning is, Winning Your Spouse Over. In case some of you are thinking to yourself, Aha! Finally! Finally! You know, I can get the upper hand here. I've been waiting for this message for a long time. It's not what you think. Let me show you, by the way, where I got that sermon title from. Verse 1, he says, Your own husbands, so that they may be won without a word. So he's talking about winning your husband. And then in verse 7, it says, you husbands, notice, in the same way. Likewise, it could say likewise, some versions say likewise, to be won over. In other words, it's talking about husbands winning your wives over. So, this is a message about winning your spouse over. And how you do that. Peter is talking about a believing spouse married to an unbelieving spouse. I'm saying it a different way, a Christian married to a non-Christian. Now, the Bible is really clear that if you are a Christian, you are to marry a Christian. 1 Corinthians uh, Corinthians 7, excuse me, as in the Lord, in the Lord, only marry in the Lord is what it says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, I believe it's verse 40. Mary of the Lord, okay? But it could be that what happens is you have two unbelievers and one becomes a Christian and now is married to one who is not a Christian. That's what Peter is referring to. The person who has become a Christian and who is now married to a person who is not a Christian. And so Peter is talking about a believing spouse, and a stra- uh, married to this unbelieving spouse, and a strategy for how to win that spouse over. Because the temptation and the thought back then would be, oh boy, I'm a believer now, this person's not a believer. You've called us to live separate from you know sin and uh, to not have fellowship with unbelievers. I think I've got to get out of this marriage. And Peter's saying, nope. There's another way to think about this. You say, well, but I'm married to a believer. So how does this apply to me? Well, I'll give you a few thoughts here. You can share this with one who is married to an unbeliever. That's one thing that you can do. There's also many principles here for all of us about marriage. So it is my hope that you will hunker in and And learn all you can as we work through this. So what goes into making a marriage be like God wants it to be? I mean, after all, sometimes as spouses, even if we are saved, we can act in the flesh like an unbeliever. Romans 7, right? So boy, we need this too. We need this too. One of the most important ways to interpret a passage of Scripture is context. Sometimes you'll hear, hear people say, context is king. And that, that's true. If you really want to get to a, a, a good sense of what a text is saying, read the context. For example, if you're in James chapter 5 and you read about healing and you think, oh, he's, ta- he's calling us to a healing ministry, not so fast. Read the context. Read all of it before you go, set up your tent, and begin your healing ministry. Okay? Read the context. Context is knowing what's behind and knowing what's ahead. Knowing the historical context is helpful too. Knowing scriptural context. That is what other passages like this one have to say. And you put it all together and you can interpret. And we're really going to need to do that here, okay, as we work our way through. So we're gonna, I'm going to help you with that. And uh, so let's do this together. So let's remind ourselves of the basic stuff about First Peter. Now, who wrote this epistle? Peter. Now, remember, what was Peter? He was an apostle. And as an apostle, he was the leader of the 12. He was a preacher to the Jews. He was a godly man. You remember Galatians 2, it's, it, it was told to us that Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles and Peter an apostle to the Jews. Does that mean that, Peter, or that, that, that Paul never spoke to Jews? Well, of course he did. Does that mean that Peter never spoke to Gentiles? No, of course he did. But predominantly that was the emphasis of their ministry. So why, and by the way, First Corinthians 9 tells us that, that the Apostle Peter was married. And so it's fascinating to me that he speaks to marriage here as one who is married. In fact, history tells us that at Peter's death, he was crucified with his wife. He got to watch his wife be crucified that must have been very, very difficult for him. But short-lived because he was crucified right after. Now, why did Peter write this letter? Peter wrote this letter to encourage a bunch of Christians, you remember, that were scattered all over, the, all over Asia, to encourage them about what you say, because they were, as it says at the very top of your notes, facing a suffering-pressured life. They were right in the middle of a life that was filled with suffering. Suffering that was coming from without. Now, Peter continued to urge them, you know, you're going to have suffering, so don't let it be because you're acting dumb, okay? That's what he basically says. You can see that all throughout. Chapter 4, read it. It's in a few different places. Like, let him, let one, he says, I think it's right around verse 17 or something, 16, let one suffer as a Christian, it says. That's what he's meaning by that, Okay. And so the world is against them, and there's slander, and there's insult, and they are suffering for being Christians. And so this is a letter on how to live in the midst of hostility. You're living for Christ, and the world around you starts to take notice, and then they start. the world around you starts to make you feel weird for living that way. That's what this is. In a sense, this is Matthew five ten through twelve. First Peter is basically an exposition of the reality of Matthew five ten through twelve when Jesus said, "Blessed are those who right who suffer, who are persecuted, and insulted." And so, this is a letter to help you, to know how to face the world when it is against you. It's really a letter on how to get your focus on eternal things instead of earthly things. Mark that thought that is going to be key as we work through first Peter three, one through seven, how to fix your mind on Christ. Colossians three, set your mind on things above. How do you, how do you do that? It's not easy. Especially when you've got life coming at you pretty fast at warp speed at times. And, And it's real and it's like, you know, if it's not bills that you're having to figure out, you know, how to work, you know, navigate through, it's the pressures that are happening in your job or your family. It's a life comes at you hard and fast and it's hard to fix our things on above where Christ is seated and not the things below where life is hard. Now watch this. The way that Peter encourages them is by getting them to see salvation. Hey, you want to encourage somebody, a Christian who's going through it, direct them to their own salvation, direct them to salvation and think about the doctrine of salvation. By the way, a little, uh, preempting here coming up in the spring. We're, uh, in January, you're going to be having a class adult class on the doctrine of salvation. I'm going to be really excited about that. I think you're the first people I've told about that. There you go. Uh, really excited about that. But boy, I tell you what, that's first Peter. Peter encourages them to say, "Hey, think about the doctrine of salvation." And I want you to think about it in three ways: past, present and future. And so from one chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 2 verse 11, it's all about just how great our salvation is. And it's remembering what we have in Christ, our inheritance, our position, our privileges, all of it. And it's all about the past, what he has done for us and what we have because of that in the past. Now, from chapter 2, verse 12, to chapter 4, verse 6, he encourages them with the present. You have an opportunity in the present. There's a reason why God left you here on this earth after he saved you. And it is this, to show them Christ. This world needs a picture of Jesus Christ. And he's left you and I here to do that very thing And it is to be the proclaimers and it is to be the purveyors of Christ. That is to show them Christ, to give them Christ. To portray the Lord Jesus to them so that it is not just hearing a message in black and white print, but it is is seeing a life in color. to be bright, to be a testimony of His grace before a lost world. Yes, you will take your lumps, but how you respond will make the message clear to them. In fact, chapter 2, verse 12, as they observe how you live, some will glorify God in the day when God visits them in salvation. He'll save some of them, in other words. That's good stuff. Now that word observe in this letter is in this letter more than a few times. He says, as they observe, chapter 2, verse 12. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. As they observe, chapter 4, verse 4. They are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. In other words, as they observe, that you don't live like them. Peter's encouragement is... They're watching. So be a testimony of God's grace, of His saving grace in Jesus Christ from your life. And then in chapter 4, verse 7, all the way to the end, He encourages them with the future and where it's all going. You know, you suffer now, but it's going to be worth it. Jesus is coming back, He's the chief shepherd. Get excited. So, if you want three words to help you remember all that He has said, remember your past by thinking of the word hope, right? Remember he told us that Jesus is a living hope? So remember, you have hope. It's living hope. Remember, you're present. You're present. And the word, for remembering your present is the word testimony. Your, your life as a witness, a testimony of his grace. How you live matters right now. It matters right now. And you might think it doesn't. And I'm telling you, You especially wonder if it does when you're raising kids. But I am telling you, you are the stage and the main character in the theater that they're watching. They watch you. And what they're watching for is wondering is your Christianity that you claim real? Is this real or not? Because the world tells me it's not. But you tell me it is. And how you live bears out the real message to them. And then remember your future, chapter 5, verse 4. And the word for that is glory. Jesus returns with your crown of glory. It says that there. So we're in the second section, remember the present, your testimony of grace lived out before unbelievers. Why? Why is that important? Here it is. He tells it. He tells it right in our passage. To win people to Christ. We live on this earth to win people to Christ. To give God glory, to give Him honor, to glorify Him in the way you bring Him glory is by living in such a way where you might win people to Christ. What's Peter's strategy on how to win people to Christ? One word. One word and it might shock you to hear this word. You've heard it before. You've heard it before, but we're going to give it again. Submission. That's it. That's our word. Our lives have to be characterized by that word. And if you think I'm just overstating this or blowing this thing up, look at chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Be submissive. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Be submissive. What are you trying to say, Peter? Be submissive. Have you got it yet? I say shocking because basically what Peter says is our lives need to be counterculture. This world is on course by Satan, he dominates the culture, he is the main influence on the culture the messages that are out there. In fact, I was just listening to a, a message by Steve Lawson this last week on First John 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. And the thing that kept getting across is this very thing, that the world is a system that does its work through it, the messages that it has, and it gets its messages from Satan himself. The world, maybe it might be best for you to understand that the world has its, that Satan has his own missionaries. And those missionaries go by the title world. And just like we have a message, the world has a message too. And it's trying to get you to believe it. And if you ever wonder, I wonder what that message is. Find somebody that can give you about a five-minute collage of commercials and watch them or listen to them. And you will hear the messages over and over and over and over and over as they try to speak to your flesh. Listen, when it comes to making money, the world knows the best thing, appeal to the thing that is deep inside of you. Now, Satan's influence on this world shows up in three areas. You could say around three institutions. The government, the workplace, and the family. You could track the erosion of America just by looking at those three institutions and seeing the erosion in all three. So it is no small thing when we hear about today the attack on the nuclear family. That's a satanic thing. And so you're going to face hostility in those three areas and there will be people in those areas that need to see the gospel in your life those are areas to shine out a testimony of his grace and how you live John MacArthur noticed that Peter goes from the largest sphere to the smallest governing authorities that's your largest social context it's a good observation Workplace, narrowing it down, and then family, the smallest social context. And you'll notice that in each one, he has the exact same message. He doesn't change the message. In each area, Peter says, submit. Submit to the governing authorities. Submit to your boss. Submit to your spouse. Now what that means for us as believers is that we cannot allow ourselves to be rebels, right? We can't go around demanding our rights. That impacts our testimony in the wrong direction. Notice chapter 3 verse 1, in the same way or likewise. And then notice chapter 3 verse 7, in the same way. What way? Submission. Submission. He say, "Well, wait a minute. Husbands are called to submit. We'll get there. Submission, and what this is, I believe, is a call to be counterculture in those in those three areas. But it is to be counterculture without being rebellious." to be submissive and, and, we've, and we've come to the area of family. Now to help you really get this, I need to explain why Peter needed to say it this way. You look at all the privileges Peter said we have as Christians, living hope, inheritance, love from God, citizens of the kingdom, chosen race, royal priesthood, all of that and maybe a person might be thinking, well, maybe the world should respect that. We've got all that going on as believers. Shouldn't the world respect that? I can do this world some good. And then you get into the world and they blast you. And maybe you're thinking, I don't need the government then with all its laws. I live by God's law. You ever have that thought? I don't need leadership from my boss. I have God as my boss, right? I don't need my unsaved spouse telling me what to do. I have the Lord now. And Peter says, hold on, not so fast. That's not how you make Christ known. And so what Peter is doing is saying, if you want to have gospel impact in all those areas of your life, you're going to need to approach it humbly. You're going to have to live different than the culture that you live in. If you want to have impact and be a testimony of Christ, do this one thing, submit this is so hard it goes against the grain of of our naturalness to the state to your boss to your spouse you show them that you're not a rebel you show them that you're not here to fight them Show them that your greatest battle is your own personal sin and not them. That's hard. In fact, your battle is for their soul. And so you live this way. Notice in chapter 2 verse 11, war against the soul. Notice in chapter 2, verse 25, shepherd and guardian of your what? Souls. That battle is at that level, see? And so when you look at all three areas, we are models of Christ. We are model citizens, chapter 2, verse 13, and 17. We are model employees, chapter verses 18 to 25 and now we are model spouses chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 now will you notice one more thing here in each area there is some critic some opposer an unbeliever who brings some suffering into your life. And so how we respond is critical for the impact of the gospel. And by the way, there's a good chance that you have responded wrongly. In maybe one or more. And we are in need of His grace, right? We me get to the end of this deal here. We're in need of His grace. So how can we show them Christ? Submission. And that is counterculture living. Now in our section, then the question is, what does a believing wife do with an unsaved husband? And what does a believing husband do with an unsaved wife? Now as we're about to get into this deal here, one last thing. Well, maybe a few other things to to see about our text. This is not Paul, Peter. Excuse me, writing out his guidelines for marriage. Hey, I want to want to write me all the guidelines that there is for marriage. This, that's not what he's doing here. Peter did not write this to give Christians help about having a Christian marriage. Are there, you know, other places in the Bible they can get that. This is about the dynamic of a believer married to an unbeliever. How a Christian lives married to a non-Christian matters. Why? The gospel. That's why. Chapter 2 or 12. One last thing. I didn't want to deal with it before we get to our text. Will you notice that Peter spends six verses on the wife and one on the husband? You say, "Huh, what is that all about?" Well, trust me, it's not because women need more work than men. It is definitely not that. Peter spends this much time on a Christian wife married to an unbelieving husband, and it is lopsided that way because it was a greater issue for a woman to become a Christian while being married to an unbeliever than a man to become a Christian while being married to an unbeliever. There were, there was it was a greater issue. Let me explain. In those days, a man had full and absolute rights over a woman. And I am telling you, and I read this in quite a few places this last week, to the extent that a man could even call for the death of his wife just because. And not really get questioned a whole lot from the legal authorities. He could do whatever he wanted without the law doing anything to him. So if a man became a Christian, he he could just take their marriage in a Christian direction and there would be no Resistance, even if that woman didn't want to become a Christian. But for a woman, it wasn't that kind of freedom. Let me let F.B. Meyer give us more insight here. Quote, Women had been degraded for centuries as they are degraded now throughout the Orient and where Christianity has not come Supposed to be destitute of souls, the drudge, and slave or toy, a piece of property, valuable or not, as the case might be. But like a ray of dawn, there came the teaching of the gospel. Woman was declared to be the helpmate of man, taken not from his head or feet, but from his side to be his companion. And Christ was neither male nor female. Galatians three twenty eight, the Holy Spirit showed no partiality in His operations, but endowed the women of the early church equally with the men. The Lord Himself had admitted women to the inner circle of His blessed friendship, and had called out their noblest attributes before the eyes of the world. There hung the memory of the Virgin Mother of the women who mistreated, or excuse me, who ministered to Him of those who broke their alabaster boxes on his person, of those who were last at his cross, first at his grave, end quote, and on and so forth. So here you have a woman who has become a Christian, and now, like Galatians 3 and 5 say, she is free. She's free in Christ. Exciting. She is now Christ's slave and no longer sees herself as the slave of man or the slave of sin. An incredible freedom. But you know, you live in a culture where you had no rights and now you have this husband who was a picture of that culture right there. What do you do? That's why Peter spends six verses on that and one for the man, see? So how does a Christian woman relate with her non-Christian husband now that the Lord has saved her? How does a Christian husband relate with his non-Christian wife? As a missionary in the mission field, you're there with purpose, right? To win him or her to Christ You have Paul's mindset in 1 Corinthians 9, 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. That's your attitude. Now having said that, one more thing to say. You need some caution and some guardrails here. What should you not do if you are a Christian spouse married to an unbeliever? First, leave. You should not leave. Don't leave. Nowhere in Scripture does it tell a Christian spouse to leave his or her unbelieving spouse. Listen to... Paul in First Corinthians 7, verse 13. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. Now that doesn't mean he's saved her, okay? Make that clear. It means he is set apart for the world and its sin and the influence of that in a greater way when he's with her. I mean, he has a, a, a godly influence from her. He has a better chance of spiritual living around her as long as she's around, right? But the message is clear. Do not leave your unbelieving spouse. And when it says leave, it means permanently leave. As long as they want to stay, that you stay with them. You say, but what if that unbelieving spouse wants to leave verse 15 yet if the unbelieving one leaves let him leave and he's talking about divorce here if he wants a divorce let him go why verse 15 the brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases for how do you know a wife whether you will save your husband see do you see this god might have another way for that unbelieving spouse to get saved. Now, what that means is while you are in that marriage, you do all you can for him to be saved. Now, you're not his savior. But you do what you can. You say, well, what can not be done? First Peter 3, 1 through 6. We're going to get to that. There's another thing that you don't do By the way, in the end, if he wants none of it, you let him go. That's the point. So, first thing, don't leave. Secondly, there's another thing you don't do if you are married to an unbelieving spouse. Don't preach at him. So don't leave. Secondly, don't yammer the gospel at him. You say, so you can't tell him anything? No, that's not the point. So many that just go for the jugular in this case. So many that just blast the message, you know, right at that spouse. And I, I've seen this. And that makes sense. It does make sense because you love him or her, but you can't force him or her into the kingdom, right? You can't manipulate or debate him in there. It's got to be God's work in the heart. So there's that. And then there's a third one that we can say, a Christian spouse shouldn't begin to push for her rights. I mean, you feel equal, you are equal, but trying to get him or her to see the rights that you have will not be helpful. Galatians 3, yes, says that you are equal, but there are roles, and his role is the leader, and so you recognize that, and you live within that, see? And how you do that is, is the most important thing. All right. So how do you win your unbelieving spouse? How do you win him over or her over? Five critical ways you must commit yourselves to, and each one goes against the culture of the day, goes against it goes the opposite of the world's way, you could say. Point number one, with a counterculture attitude. A counterculture attitude. What attitude? Submission over control. Verse 1, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they they may be won. Peter says in the same way, what way the way a person under the governing authorities is when that governor acts in a foolish way. We don't have to pretend that the governor is saying awesome things. But we do need to come under that authority, right? Right? the way a servant would do with a master who is unreasonable, unreasonable and even treats you harshly and you suffer unjustly, in that same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Notice, your own husbands. All throughout the Bible when it calls for a woman to submit, by the way, it's fascinating to me, it says your own. You can see it in Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, your own God doesn't call you to submit to any other man, just your husband, see? If you want to win that unbelieving husband to Christ, the Lord's going to do it with your attitude. Notice, how do you win him over? Submission over control. What's your tendency to try to control him, right? I mean, that's Genesis 3. It's good to remind, you know, to be reminded of what the Bible says. I mean, you're equal in all things except one that matters. And you're, there's equality in everything, but there's an, but, the, the, but you're not both, you're not doing the same thing. The woman, a woman isn't inferior to her husband in anything. And so it's not a point about inferiority. Call here has to do with the role of a husband versus the role of a woman. God has called him to be a leader in this marriage for you. Very important to say it that way. And you're called to have a place of submission for him. For Yeah. So that you both are helping each other. So we're talking about headship, leadership. And beloved, this is God's design. You say, Where did he get that design from? Are you ready for this? From the Trinity. First Corinthians eleven. Verse 3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. And so you have the Father and you have the Son and they are equal, but the Father is the head of Christ. And that means that that is His role in the triune relationship. What's the role of the Son? To be the Redeemer. What's the role of the Spirit? To apply the salvation that the Son accomplishes. And so what you have are all three having roles, though there's equality. And so it's the same with a man and a woman, he says there, who are married equal and yet different roles. And you can see the same thing, by the way, taught in 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 14. Then Peter says, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, when he says... Word, I believe the best way to look at that word, logos is the word, or logos, it means gospel here. Like the word of reconciliation or the word of the cross. First Corinthians 1 and 2. You can even translate, by the way, that word disobedient as unpersuaded. And so here you have a husband who is unpersuaded by the message Of the gospel. Now you remember with the two other areas, government and workplace, it says there that you were silencing others with the way you lived and they weren't receiving the gospel, right? Same here. You have a husband was on the outside of the gospel. So the first thing to do, the first way you win that unbelieving husband, check your attitude. You say, but he's an unbeliever. It doesn't matter. You're called to submit to his leadership over you, and that's for believer or unbeliever. That's Ephesians five, twenty two to thirty three. That's Titus two, four and five. Encourage the young women to be subject to their own husbands. That's Colossians three, eighteen, as is fitting in the Lord. So that's just a principle about marriage, and it has nothing to do with him being a Christian. And so it starts with this attitude of submission. Point number two. How can you win him? with counterculture conduct. Counterculture conduct. And the emphasis of this is showing over debating. All right. What is the temptation for a woman who has been newly saved? It is to try to debate her husband into the kingdom, right? I mean, that's the temptation. I can't blame there. I mean... You know, win the argument. Use your words. So what's Peter say? Verse 1. That they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now, let me just stop and say this here. He is not saying, Christian wife, you must take a vow of silence in the home and never say a word. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that at all. In fact, he's not even saying that you can't appeal or disagree or use your words to point him to Christ. Somebody... He's he's not saying that uh, whatever he says, you just have to pretend. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, you can talk to him, you can share the gospel with him. So what does it mean then? It means that you don't think that your words are the thing that will win him over. In other words, you can't harass the man into the kingdom, okay? It's not going to work. There's no badgering for the Lord, right? The strongest tool of evangelism you have in your belt is your godly character. That's what he's saying, not your words. What's he saying here? Your behavior, not words, are what matter. How you live your life. Two words define the impact of that kind of life that wins an unbelieving spouse. Chaste and respectful. You can summarize those words with one word, faithful. A pure life is what he's talking about. Christian woman who is faithful to her husband that is a powerful tool these are his words this is what he says "Chaste, you are committed to him and him alone and when you're with him you show him respect you make it clear that you respect him again you don't have to pretend that he's the wisest man on the earth but you do make it clear that you respect him as a whole You say, well, but you should hear the dumb things that come out of his mouth. Sure. But again, we're talking about showing respect because of the position that the Lord has given him. You say, what position is that? Uh, Ephesians 5 says, Wives, verse 22, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. You know what he says? Serve, be subject to him like he's Jesus. You say, My husband's barely Jesus, right? <laughs> Listen, you really you're serving Christ, not him. Right? In Colossians three eighteen, be subject to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, submit to him like he is the Lord Jesus. He's clearly not. I mean, that's a fair point, but the Lord has put him there to remind you about the Lord Jesus. In fact, maybe every dumb thing that he says, you could say to yourself, oh yeah, serve the Lord Jesus, right? Just another reminder. And this is consistent by the way 1 Peter 2, it's our godliness that has the greatest impact, right? Point number three, third point. With counterculture presentation. With counterculture presentation. What's the emphasis here? Spiritual over external. Verses 3 and 4. So what do you mean by presentation? Your appearance. Your modesty. What's the focus? Spiritual over external. Heart overlooks. Go with heart overlooks. Now here, Peter's talking about modesty, but even more than modesty. He's talking about a, a true spiritual presentation. Look at verses 3 and 4. Your adornment must not mere, be merely external Braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. He says, "Your adornment, uh, how you present yourself on the outside. It it can't be merely external." Peter says, "It can't be just, you know, just be a focus on what you look like." Now it's no stretch that if you compare the average woman to the average man, you would say a woman is more preoccupied with looks than a man. Listen, some men are just absolutely oblivious, and lots are trying to help them, okay? But we're talking about a strategy trying to save your unsaved husband. What a woman wears how she presents herself on the outside. Peter says it can't be an external focus. What should the focus be? Character. Now if you do a study, by the way, in the Greek and Roman culture, you will find this tremendous focus on the external. I mean, in a super high level. Do your own study. Do research. You'll see this. I mean, they were... All concerned about the outside of the cup, the look, the cosmos. That's the Greek term, cosmos, for um, we get the word cosmetics from. It is sometimes translated world. It means an orderly arrangement of things. The right arrangement gave it the beauty. It was the culture that determined what was the right arrangement. How did the culture decide what was right? That's what we're talking about here. Rogers of Rogers, linguistic key to the, New, the Greek New Testament says, quote, the braiding of the hair along with bright clothes was important in the cult of Artemis of Ephesus and the cult of Isis, end quote. And so the idea was to, to flaunt the wealth, to show that you're connected to that deity or whatever, it was to make yourself stand out with some sort of image or persona. Today, we might say, you know, optics. What are the optics like? It is to give people an impression about you that made you say, Oh, that person is with it. They, were, they are, Look at them according to the style. They've got it going on, we might say today. So the gold, the jewelry, the bling, the dresses, all of it was for show to get your attention away from character. In fact, you could even say it was a distraction from the character. Now let me be very clear here. The Lord is not condemning wanting to look good, okay? I mean, He's not saying... That the spiritual look is a plain, no makeup, tattered, drab thing, draped over you sort of look. Okay? That's not what he's saying. The point is, and by the way, you can read Isaiah 3 and see that it has always tended this way. But the point is, that's not true beauty in God's eyes. The internal is more important than the external. The spiritual is always a greater value than the outer. What is the Lord's concern? It is the hidden person of the heart. What's that mean? The inner person. The the, the place where godly character is. And if you want a list of godly character, just go look at Galatians 5.22-23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all that stuff. Read Psalm 15. Listen, putting your money into glamming up your body isn't the way to win your spouse to Christ. What is godly character? That was Paul's message in 1 Timothy 2. Listen to verse 9. I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, And discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now the braiding and gold and pearls and costly garments, they had a culture thing to it. It's not the same as a person braiding hair today. They actually would literally braid in their braids. They would braid in gold and and different things like that, demonstrating the wealth. But really, the point is, it's whatever the culture says is the kind of external adornment that gets attention. We can't miss what's really important here, right? The inside. The heart, beauty from the inside. A gentle and quiet spirit, Peter says. Same word, by the way, they describe Jesus in Matthew 11 gentle and lowly. Meek, actually, is the word in the Greek. Power under control. You might say confidence under control. I think that would be good. For all of us, but in particular in this context for women, to really think, meditate on that. Think about that confidence under control when it comes to looks versus the heart. Sometimes people confuse, hey, I'm going to make a look on the outside and demonstrate my confidence. Let me say it again. He's not forbidding outside beauty. But he's saying the priority is the heart. By the way, the passage here in 1 Timothy 2, when it says making a claim to godliness, literally what it pictures is that your godliness, the way you dress, should match your godliness. So watch this. The lower the godliness, the less what you look like, right? That you, 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 It goes in that direction. The lower the godliness, the more the outside is going to portray what the world portrays. The greater the godliness, the more it's going to portray the heart. And that's what he's saying. You need to make it match, he says. By the way, a beautiful person on the inside tends to be beautiful on the outside. And I think that's because God is the God of order and beauty. By the way, I mean, you can read about that in Exodus and the Song of Solomon and so many places, Revelation, about him being the God of beauty. I mean, he's the one, Matthew 6, that dresses up the flowers in the field with all the colors. You can go out there to that field and look at all the flowers and say, that's so beautiful. Okay, well, there you go. He's not against beauty. I would say go for it. But it has to do with motive, doesn't it, really? He's talking about modesty. There's a fourth way to win your spouse over. Number four, with counterculture models. Counterculture models. I am indeed using this as a play on words, and I'll show you here in a moment. It's going to be a point. Simulation. The emphasis is simulation over culturization. Now, these days, most women are imitating the wrong models. Instead of putting the glam models from the magazines before you, Peter says, Put these models in front of you and imitate them. Imitate their beauty. Who? Look at verses 5 and 6. For this way in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands just as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Peter says, you want to win your your spouse to Christ? Go back to the Old Testament and put the holy women before you and study them and imitate their beauty. Notice those Old Testament women are called the holy women. Now, by the way, (laughs) again, I just want to be clear with what Peter is saying here. You remember Sarah... At an older age, was she was taken to be wanting to be a wife of that one guy until it was made clear that uh, she was Abraham's wife, meaning that she was a beautiful woman, externally beautiful. The Lord is not against that at all. But you know what was greater? What beauty shone greater than her external beauty? Holiness. What are you imitating? Their holiness, see? Which women? Well, I mean, there's, it says holy women, so he doesn't give us specific names until you get to verse 6. But you can study Rebecca, you can study Ruth, you can study Hannah. There's a lot of ladies all throughout Scripture that have been just phenomenal in their godly display. What stands out from these women? He says it here. They hoped in God. In other words, they walked by faith and not by sight. Their best clothes were holiness. They had high standards. Notice... They adorned themselves with submission to their own husbands. By the way, hope in God was the way to describe a true Old Testament believer. Now, if you really want a model, check out Sarah, verse six. Peter has Genesis eighteen twelve in mind. Sarah obeyed Abraham. You say wait, obeyed him? Well. Abraham didn't go around barking orders. I think what it means is that she delighted to go where Abraham wanted to go. Peter said, Sarah called Abraham Lord. He said, all right, it's going a little too far here. (laughs) I'm not doing that. Well, that's a cultural thing there, but the point is that Peter, or excuse me, that Sarah respected Abraham and wanted him to know. Unless Abraham was asking her to sin, she was following him wherever he went. Now, Abraham is the father of faith, Romans 4 3. Notice in our verse, Sarah, his wife, is the mother of every woman who commits herself to be submissive to her husband. You have Sarah as your mother. Isn't that good? Peter says, if you do what is right without fear, he means you fear God. You don't fear where your husband might take you. You say, why say that? Because in 1 Peter 3 6, the husband you remember is what? An unbeliever. Can I really follow him? Yes, without fear. How? Because you're really following Christ. And as long as your husband doesn't ask you to disobey God, just follow. I tell you, it's a scary thing to follow any husband. They're all sinners. They're all sinners. Woman was made from man's side. The man was made from dirt. That's who you're following, right? It's always good for me to remember that. Oh, yeah. That's what I am. You know, just got to make sure I'm a better pile, you know. Godly pile. So, yeah, this is really an act of faith. One last point. It has to do with the believing husband, with the unbelieving wife. We'll end this right here. The emphasis is sensitivity over force. With counterculture care, that's your point. You win him, win, him, win her, over with counterculture care. Now I'm going to give you the real quick version here. Verse seven, Peter says, "You husbands, in the same way." What way? Submission. He says, so a husband is to submit to his wife? I don't think that's what he has in mind, but sort of. I'll I'll explain. He is to be submissive, like to the governing authorities and in the workplace, and like his wife is to him, he is to be submissive. Ephesians 5.21 tells us, to the Lord. And because submission is an attitude, in a sense, there is a submission that he has towards his wife from the standpoint that he's just willing to be there for her. And the Lord uses that submission, by the way, when he is submissive to the Lord to win her to Christ. Christ. So how can he show that he is submissive to the Lord? How can he show that his submission to his Lord, to his unbelieving wife? Three ways. First, by consideration. Look at verse 7. Live with your wives in an understanding way. That word for understanding is the word gnosis. And it means deep knowledge. To know her, it was especially translated oftentimes to know her in a sexual way. And so it especially had to do with intimate knowledge, even sexual intimacy, knowing your wife. And what he is saying is, out of compassion, you, believing husband to your unbelieving wife, make sure that you please her in intimacy, especially sexually. Make sure of that. I mean, this guy might be tempted to think, well, we no longer have anything in common. We can't be close. Peter says, no, you make sure that she knows that she has your intimacy. Make sure of that. Secondly, not only by consideration, but by compassion. Look at verse 7. As with someone weaker. There are a lot of men married to some pretty strong women, but even the strongest are not really stronger than a man biologically. In fact, this word is a comparative. In other words, you're weak, she's weaker. That's the point. Never forget, man, that you're weak. You win her over by remembering as a weak person, her being weaker, you're put there to do all you can to protect her. So again, you you show that unbelieving woman this and you do that. And then third, by companionship, verse 7, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Now listen here. In the context, this is talking about sharing a spiritual life. I mean, it can't be talking about sharing a spiritual life because you can't do that with an unbeliever, but it is talking about a kind of sharing. What does it mean to be the heir of the grace of life here if it's not talking about a believer with a believer? Well, the word grace can also have to do with those things which are blessing or beneficial that come out of life. And so what he is saying is, you share with her all those things that are good about life. In other words, just be a companion to her. You do that. All three of those things, and the Lord uses that to win her to Christ. There's one more thing that you do. Verse seven, you pray. So that your prayers will not be hindered. By the way, now that we get to this end, what are you praying for? What is this unbelie? What is this believing? Husband praying for her what? Salvation. So that they won't be hindered. Live this way and God does that saving. All right. I've spent a lot of time. So let me conclude here. You say, what if, okay, what if I'm a believer and she's a believer? What about that? Well, let me just tell you this. This is a picture from the lesser to the greater. You do these things to win your spouse. You do these things because you've been won over. Right? Amen? Let's pray. Dear Father, we um, are taken back by all that is here, Lord, and we, we just want to live in the light of the grace that's here Help us to be those people that are committed to winning other people to Christ, but especially our own spouse. And if you have won them over, Lord, help us to live these things out so that we can continue to just point to you in all that you do and bring you two sinners together to know you. We love you and praise you. And may you have the glory in all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.